You are Locked On AFL, your daily AFL podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to Locked On AFL. I'm your host, Kane Pittman. Particularly with a pathetic effort from Pitt. I mean, it, it was the most disgraceful display I've ever seen from a big film. That's pretty hard on an individual, but he's going to have to live with that. And alongside me for the first ever grand final week for Locked On AFL is Josh Lloyd. Lloyd is Lloyd. Lloyd to Lloyd. 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 Kane, have any of your former coaches ever called you a fat little Ford pocket? <laughs> uh, no, they haven't. Um, that would be that would be very harsh, though. Has it, has it, has who's been called a fat little forward pocket? They better not be talking about my guy, Gary Ablett. No, no, they're talking about the uh, your current reigning Brownlow medalist, Lockie Neal. That was Ross Lyons' uh, uh, comment that maybe if he didn't... Uh, Maybe if he didn't get uh, get his body into shape, that that's how he'd be uh, remembered at a state level rather than the player that he has become. Yeah, lucky Neil. I, I don't think it was any surprise. I think the last word we had on the show was me asking, on Friday, was me asking you whether you thought there was any chance that anyone would get close to him. Uh, this Brownlow count was over by, uh, honestly, it felt like about round six. You knew exactly the direction it was going to head. The, the guy is just a the guy's just a three-vote magnet. I actually counted it up or did a little... Average there, so 31 votes across a 17 game season. So he was averaging 1.8 votes per game. If you expanded that out to the usual 22 game season, he would have cracked 40 votes for the first time. Uh, that would have happened in the three in the one two three or three two one vote era. I think Dusty Martin had 36 yeah, in 2017, did. so he would have absolutely eclipsed that. Just <laughs> just an incredible season. Saw some numbers that it was the highest vote per game number ever. Uh, he's yeah. 1.82, and the highest I think was I think maybe Dick Reynolds at 1.80 before that. So just uh, marginally marginally tipped him. We talked about the Brownlow early in the season. I think round two you asked me who's, who do you think is going to win the Brownlow. I said I think it's got to be Lockie Neal at this point. And I don't really ever think we talked too much about it after that. And uh, it almost fell to fate accompli after about six or seven rounds. And that's the way it panned out. Big big win for Lockie Neal. We'll talk about that a little bit more later. But Kane, the grand final set. Your blokes are in. They made the grand final. They got past there preliminary final hoodoo or whatever it is that's been cursing them uh, and they did it pretty comfortably Let, let's we're going to talk about the Geelong game later let's start off with it because you, you're pretty excited the cats are in the big one yeah I just actually mentioned to you before we started recording I've just been looking at some of the numbers here over the last sort of 15-20 minutes and it's it's quite remarkable how dominant this was I, I think during the game certainly the cats it, through the first half I think wasted Significant opportunities, and there's no doubt Brisbane missed some easy ones as well. But uh, some of the the shots that come to mind is the the Graham Myers missed chest mark and then missed oh, yeah. uh, goal there. Sam Menegola running into an open goal, he missed an easy one as well. So the Cats, despite their absolute dominance, to only go in halftime five points up, it was almost feeling a little bit ironic that the Cats might lose a game to Brisbane because of accuracy due to. Uh, against the Brisbane Lions, a team that we've discussed all season long as the most inaccurate of the uh, elite teams in the AFL. But the reason why it felt that the Cats were going to find themselves in a little bit of trouble is because you had to believe at some point Brisbane was going to get on top around the stoppages and find that little 10-15 minute burst of momentum in the second half. And it, it just did not come. It, it, <laughs> it, it didn't come at all. The Cats were able to find the goals and this was, this was really a domination. 
Yeah, it was. Um, Geelong kicked 4-8 in the first half, which is you know, really obviously inaccurate. Ended up kicking 16 behinds for the game. It was 27 scoring shots to 12. And it's almost a double double the score. They yeah, out-disposed them, 65, plus 65 in disposals, plus 20 in marks. It was just really, right across the board, a big domination, plus 18 in inside forward 50s, which is a huge discrepancy there as well. And Geelong just, they just... Every time Brisbane even showed like a, a glimmer, we saw yeah that big goal from Lockie Neal outside 50. We saw, and then yeah, Hipwood had a shot and, and missed an easy goal, and then Geelong would just go down and, and put them to the sword. And, and uh, we talk, you talked about Myers missing that mark. He was having a stinker early on, but he, he did get it back a little bit later on, but he was, he was really struggling at times early in that first half. But a guy that I said needed to lift for your, bo- your boys, <laughs> and that was uh, Gary Ablett, who we said, yeah, why is he not playing? Um, yeah, big game time. He's not being impactful. Well, he had kick, he kicked two two in this one out of his fourteen disposals, and he was everywhere. Yeah, it was interesting, and and I do. I mean, again, and I said this after the Collingwood game, but it's a little bit difficult to really tell. It, it was Brisbane down, uh, like the week before was Collingwood down because this level of domination, particularly in finals, you don't often see in back to back weeks. So you, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what you 100% take away from it. But what I will say is Gary Ablett, who you just spoke about, now has played a couple of games back. So played round uh, 18 against Sydney was his first game back. He's had a couple of finals now, and, and he did look back to his uh, most damaging best, I'll say, uh, as far as the forward line version of Gary Ablett. Just again, every single touch he had uh, seemed to amount to some sort of scoring shot or a goal to himself. He probably actually could have kicked four or five goals. He missed a couple of opportunities as well, but... That classic Hawkins to Ablett left foot snap from he was it was 45 meters out and he snapped it post height on his left, uh, just missed in the first quarter. But that was classic Gary Ablett. But he he's just so damaging. Every time he touches the ball, you feel like something good's going to happen. This is what I said he needed to do. Like he needed to get back to that guy who had 15 touches and hit the scoreboard. He had seven score involvements. He was he had taking grabs. He had four inside 50s, and that's what had been lacking those first couple of weeks. And still, he still only played 74 percent time on ground. And they didn't need to play him very much, considering the uh, yeah, Selwood only played seventy six percent as well, because the game was in hand pretty early, so they were able to get a little bit of rest into these players. But really spreading it out and spreading that load out. But yeah, it, it was good to see that he got back some of that form that, that was lacking in those first couple of finals, and back to the Gary Ablett, that damaging forward line version of Gary Ablett that we saw all through the season. Very interesting with this team. Mitch Duncan led the team with disposals. Only 22 touches. That is a low number to be the highest disposal winner on a team. Uh, no one else over 20. Men and Goler and Tom Stewart next on 19. We heard it mentioned lots of times on the commentary. Joel Selwood didn't get a touch at all in the first quarter. Paddy Dangerfield wasn't at his best. It felt like these guys weren't all at their best. Yet somehow the game was over really quickly. Yeah, well, it's interesting to look at the, the, the disposal count from this game compared to the game earlier in the season. We know in that round seven game versus Geelong, Brisbane did have periods of dominance, particularly through the first quarter and a half. But overall, when you look at the disposal count for Brisbane, 235 in this game, that is the second lowest of the season for the Lions. The other lowest was 233 against Geelong in round seven. Uh, Other than that, they haven't dropped below 257 disposals all season long. So the Cats, although it wasn't one individual player, they decimated Brisbane all year long. And to be honest, they, they and I, this is not something that I, I normally have said about Brisbane all season long, but they were actually physically bullied in this game around the stoppages. The Cats looked too big. They looked like they were bigger and stronger than the Lions, and it's the second time it's happened this year. And I thought that coming into the game, there was an interesting selection 
when Coleman went out, and we didn't get a chance to talk about this because uh, the teams came out uh, late on Friday, but Coleman, the uh, young Coleman went out of the team. Now, it was only interesting because the Cats in the past have had troubles with lightning quick, small forward types that can cause some damage, and Coleman had some good moments against Brisbane, but they brought in Cam Alice Yolman, a big body. And to me, when they brought him in, I thought to myself, geez, maybe Brisbane's a little bit concerned that they got bullied last time they played and they want to get a bigger body in there uh, to help out around the stoppages around the ground. Alice Yolman really didn't have an impact on the game. But again, if I was Brisbane, that's that's what I'd be looking at because the Cats, uh, yes, they have their midfielders. We know the guys you mentioned, the Guthries, the Dangerfields, but they can have Mitch Duncan out on the wing. He's a big guy. Sam Manigola out on the wing, another big guy. And Mark Blitzer, as we know, rolls around as that Ruckman slash wingman slash uh, whatever you want to call it, ultimate utility player. So overall, it was a really even effort, as you said, but they, they just look too big. Well, that was something that we mentioned in the preview uh, on Friday, talking about the Brisbane being in quite a small midfield and Geelong having that bigger bodied midfield and seeing which one of those is going to win out. And in finals, that can often wear down with the bigger bodies in terms of uh, clearances, and that's obviously what happened in this one. Brisbane were also hurt by the fact that they had Darcy Gardner as a late out. Yeah. He was replaced by Jack Payne, who I thought Payne actually was okay. I thought he was pretty good, and he wasn't, he wasn't the... Um, he wasn't the weak link in that Brisbane team, but I think it would have been good to have uh, have Gardner in that that squad. They just couldn't get it going. Like just Zorko was was missing in action in this one. Yeah, Alice Yolman, I don't know what he was providing. Uh, Neil was really good. Obviously, kicked those two goals, yeah. including one absolute bomb. But just the other players just didn't really feel like they could get into it. McStay and Hipwood were disappointing. Cameron started out fantastically, still kicked two goals, but only had five touches. Just wasn't dangerous enough uh, in this one, and it just. I don't know, it was a disappointing way for Brisbane to go out, given how good they've been all season. But there was that risk coming into this game that the big-bodied Geelong midfield would take advantage of them and that uh, that clearance and midfield dominance that Brisbane's had all season might not be quite as... uh, quite as impactful in this one against this Geelong team. And that's exactly how it panned out. And, uh, yeah, a lot of people talking about, oh, it's, oh yeah, pre-finals by, it's so disadvantageous to those top two teams. But when we've talked about this season all year, the top four teams, we've been pretty clear that these are the best four teams, and they're really close. And I think heading into the finals, we assumed Geelong and Richmond were probably the two favoured teams to, to get through to a to a grand final, or at least yeah, maybe Richmond would be, would be the favourite, and then you'd have Geelong-Brisbane pretty close after that. So even though Geelong and Richmond both lost their first final, I don't think it's any sort of surprise that they that they win and they make it through to the grand final because they've been these teams that we've been expecting to do this you know, pretty much all season. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I can certainly understand why it's been brought up. And, and now, if you just purely look at the record, it, it does tell you that it... And maybe the sample size is too small, but it is telling us that it is leveling the play and playing field a little bit. Is we that a bad something? thing? Um, I, I think if the if the design of the top four is to give the the teams that finish on top and win the first week of the final an advantage, then yeah, I, I don't think that the, the <laughs> I don't think you would want to level the playing field. So as a fan, as a neutral, does it give you an opportunity to see closer uh, finals? I think so, uh, but it. it it has been a trend that teams will start slow in that prelim. And Brisbane were clearly pretty awful. I don't know what the numbers is. I think it's one game in about 24, 26 days or something like that. I mean, it, it's just not ideal preparation. So, I, I, I mean, you can ask me. I'm a, I'm a Geelong fan. They never win after a bye. So, one of the things I said after they lost to Port, maybe it's the best thing for them because they would not play well 
after a buy. So I don't know. I mean, the players would know and they'd be able to tell you how they're feeling. I mean, you would think that an extra week off is good to recover, good to refresh um, the body. But the, the results are telling us that it's significantly changed since they added that extra buy. And I, I don't I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know whether that's something that they want to continue with or, or what they want to do because we know originally they only did this because of of one game really that that Fremantle game wasn't it where they rested yeah, you know, 10 players or whatever yeah. it was so the AFL said okay well instead of doing that that's just and in the end it's like uh, I don't know if that was uh, 100% worth it I've never been a big fan of the first week by anyway because once the season finishes I just want to get stuck straight into it but I know I know I know we've discussed that uh, a few times on this show yeah I don't it's so I'd love to hear the theories from teams and from medical staff about you know what this does in terms of having these breaks and whether it's an impact because McLaughlin reckons that he you know, spoke to teams and that you know, I think it was eight out of the ten teams that he spoke to said no we want that pre-finals by because and that must be coming from medical staff and, yeah. and coaching staff having that extra rest is actually beneficial as they move through the finals and they'd obviously take into account well, what happens if we only play the one game in 20 odd days and so teams seem to be in favor of it but a lot of people on the outside uh don't seem to be as big a fans of it. But again, at the start of the finals, if you had said Geelong and Richmond are meeting in the grand final, I don't think anybody would be surprised. And yeah, that's overcoming home ground advantages for both Brisbane and Port. That other game, um, Geelong through the grand final. We're going to talk more about Geelong during the week. We'll talk about Brisbane probably at times as well. But Richmond and Port, the game of the year from the, the home and away season, didn't quite live up to that level, and and I'm looking at the score, and obviously I watched the game and knew, but I didn't I didn't think that Richmond won by only six points. I don't I know that sounds stupid to say, but they only got over the over the line, but by it didn't feel like they just got over the line is what I'm trying to say. They win 46 to 40 to push through to their third grand final in four years. Port kept it close, but it always felt like Richmond had it in control. Yeah, they certainly felt more dangerous with the footy. I'll say that because again, the stat counts the stat counts tell you. A pretty familiar story for these two teams. Port Adelaide generally like to get their hands on the footy a lot. Richmond, not so much, certainly compared to some of the other elite teams. So Richmond, uh, minus 32 in disposals and an incredible minus 15 in inside 50s, although uh, the 59 inside 50s count for Port Adelaide is, is extremely high. But I think the weather contributed to that. The ball was on the ground a lot. There was just scrambling balls inside 50, and it did feel like Richmond were more dangerous. And... The one thing I said prior to the game, if Richmond win the clearances, it's almost impossible to see them losing this game. And I think I said that they might actually win this game really comfortably. You look at the scoring shots, six goals, 10. As you sort of pointed to, it did feel like Richmond should have won this game comfortably. And just to, to emphasize how crazy this, this clearance number here is, Richmond clearances 41 to 29 Port Adelaide. Richmond had only won the clearance count twice during the home and away season. They were ranked dead last in clearances per game. They beat St. Kilda last week, which was only the third time for the entire season. But they they, they went in and they've won the clearances plus 12 against the team that, that last time they played uh, completely decimated them in, in that area. And so it, it just felt that if Richmond were going to be able to win the ball around the source and actually get those opportunities inside 50 they weren't going to lose because, again, one of the things I mentioned prior to the game, Richmond should find space at the back because Port Adelaide are going to push numbers forward. They're going to try and keep the ball inside their forward 50. And to me, it felt like that was the case. Every time Richmond got the ball on the rebound, particularly with the, the wet conditions, the skidding conditions, we know Richmond are not afraid to just soccer the ball off the ground, whack the ball forward, mess things up a little bit. 
they seem to just be, be able to find all the space and, and create dangerous opportunities that Port just could not. Yeah, they they always seemed in control of this one, and it was it was interesting to, to see how this game unfolded. But that clearancing is something we talked about, how Richmond just doesn't get their hand on the ball there, and if they could manage that, then they'd probably have a real chance of, well, yeah, a great chance of winning the game. And not only did they manage it, but they, they comprehensively beat them at, uh, at stoppages, which is, like you mentioned, um, something that just didn't happen during the course of the season. They just didn't, they didn't win by getting clearances. They won by putting pressure on around the ground and forcing, uh, forcing turnovers. But you're really a game that, yeah, I don't think you expect Kane Lambert to kick two final quarter goals in a preliminary final to get you over the line because they, Port Adelaide got the first goal of that last quarter. They, it was a goal by Charlie Dixon. So they took the lead after going in two points down. And then Lambert kicked two pretty tough ones um, in that, uh, or at least one was a tough one in that final quarter. And that was that was the difference. And you don't really expect him to be the guy that uh, that's, that pops up and uh, and kicks those couple in the final quarter. Well, you don't. But this, again, is <laughs> this is what this is why Richmond has been such a terrifying prospect all season long for everyone. Because you knew that the Cavalry was going to return. And all year I've spoken about Collingwood and the fact that it can be a little bit hard to judge their season because of the guys that they had out, particularly from their engine room all season long. And it forces you to put guys in the middle that you probably, if all things were perfect, you wouldn't have to do that. In Richmond, there's no doubt that, that they've had to do that. And and a guy like Shai Bolton, who's had an incredible season, has probably been amplified uh, or his development has, has been sharply increased because of the fact that he's had to take huge responsibility all season long. And now you're seeing the benefits of him being in that position. But we mentioned it, but last time they played Port, no Dion Prestia, no Shane Edwards, no Trent Cochin. So that's just a cut. They had a, a bunch of other guys out. But when you take Prestia, Edwards, Cochin, that's three guys that are ball winners. That's three guys that can win you clearances. When they come back into the midfield and then you, you, you move some of the other guys out to the periphery, like a Kane Lambert, who spends more time uh, and half forward, then that's that's why they're so dangerous because the depth now is absolutely ridiculous and and we saw that and that's how you can have such a swing from uh, that game earlier in the season and Richmond to me they are the typical dominant AFL team that can just flip a switch and, and there's no doubt that late in the season they flipped a switch and they've done it particularly around the clearances in the final so far. The interesting thing is that those guys like Bolton, Graham, and Short, who really stepped up when all those other players were out, they're not falling completely by the wayside here. They're still putting up you know, really mm-hmm. strong performances and moving into a, a secondary-type role behind the Prestiers and those sort of players. And Basha Hooley coming off half-back, guys that were missing all season, and Edwards, but they're still having big, big impacts. And that is just a terrifying prospect to see these guys yeah, be able to just you know, shift from you know, the primary movers at one point in the season to the secondary guys and still having huge impacts. Interesting move by Hardwick in this game, throwing Noah Bolter down forward at one point. It wasn't, <laughs> wasn't for long, but that was a little bit weird. He, and he, he led well, took a big grab, didn't kick the goal, but it was a, an interesting move. And you think, well, can, can he go forward and create other options up there? That was something that I just didn't expect to see, but he moved pretty well for a forward. That was uh, just something interesting. And the other thing, uh, Daniel Rioli struggled for most of this season. Although he's looked really good the last couple of weeks, sort of almost back to his best of where he was. He had another six tackles in this game. Um, yeah, got 13 disposals, was setting blokes up across half forward. He looked to be back to his, you know, at least close to his best, where he'd struggled to get to that level most of the season. Yeah, just on Balter, I mean, <laughs> this guy, what a revelation he's been. Basically coming into the team with the Asprey injury, and a few other guys back there that went down, but he's taken all the key players, and and really he dominated uh, Charlie Dixon, yep. and obviously clearly 
this week. He's probably got the important matchup. He's going to get Hawkins. He played really, really, really well on him last time. Um, we'll touch on that through the week. But Charlie Dixon, not a good season against the good teams. Like, that's not... And I mentioned it last week that he's a player that needs to step up. But let's not uh, let's not mess around here. This is a guy that led the AFL and contested marks all season long. He was this physical presence. He was this dominant player. He only kicked four goals in five games against the preliminary finalists. So Geelong, Brisbane, and obviously Richmond. Four goals in five games. He only had the nine disposals on the weekend. And clearly, conditions were difficult. I didn't think that the inside 50 entries favored him at all. Like, I, I don't think... I don't think it was, a, it was a night that he was going to be able to dominate. Clearly, he kicked a big goal at the end. But that, that's not a good record for a guy that the power we spoke about, they needed him to play well for them to win games. Uh, he wasn't able to do it against the best this year. Yeah, uh, exactly. He had those struggles. And Port, yeah, they, they did win that one against Richmond. They beat along in the finals. But but overall, they just they never felt like they were pushing uh, those better teams. And look, it's a great effort to go from outside the eight to finish on top of the ladder to get a home preliminary final and to only go down by six points to the best team of the last four years. It, it's still a really successful season, but it always just felt like something was lacking. Maybe that was Dixon's ability to take over those games against those better teams. One of the things, we're going to be talking a lot about Richmond during the week. One other thing with Port here, just got to give a, a mention to Brad Ebert because he he re- has retired. He took another uh, concussion and looked horrible coming off. But what a what a courageous play in the in the final quarter of a preliminary final. Go back, get absolutely smacked by Jack Rewald, hit his head on the, on the turf and suffer another concussion. But just really epitomized the way that Ebert has played through his career this season and another concussion ends, uh, ends his career now. Yeah, no surprise that he called it quits after a hit like that. It was kind of, yeah, it was it was kind of scary to see how wobbly he was, particularly when you know the history. And, and even Ken Hinckley after the game was sort of speaking about the fact that he's been weighing it up through the season as well. So it just, uh, it's it's quite incredible that he, he's been so aware of the head issues that he's had. Obviously, he's chucked the, the helmet on. Uh, obviously, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, in a situation like that, clearly a helmet isn't going to help you out too much. But... He was clearly aware of the the issues that he's had with his head, the knocks that he's had, and he was still willing to put himself in that situation to hopefully help his team into a grand final. And yeah, I was I didn't really care who won this game to be honest. I was just hoping for a, for a really close one. But after that incident, I was I, I don't think that Ebert. You know, this is kind of the funny thing. I, I'm not sure whether he would have got up to play the week after oh, anyway, no particularly yeah. after a concussion like that. But I I almost really want to put Adelaide to win after that effort. Because yeah. it, it was uh, it was kind of like goosebump stuff. It was incredible. He got the standing ovation. He clearly didn't really know where he was after after that play. But to do that and not give a free kick as well. I mean, the execution was uh, forget the courage. The execution was absolutely unbelievable as well. So yeah, so that's a a, a fair way to go out. Obviously, um, and just hope that you know he's not uh, the after effects of that aren't hurting him too much this week. We did have the Brownlow medal last night, uh, untraditionally, on a Sunday night. The red-hot favourite was Lockie Neal, as we talked about already. He dutifully saluted there. Um, how much? How angry do you get about snubs, about Nick Natanui getting only five votes and yeah, Brad Shepard as an All-Australian getting zero votes and players getting lots of touches and then not getting the votes? Like, what did you make of the overall Brownlow? I just generally don't give too much of a shit about that sort of stuff. I think the Brownlow is quite a flawed award anyway, and we place way too much importance on it. Um, what did you make of, we've talked about Neil winning it already, but just the the entirety, or what were some things that stood out to you? Yeah, I was thinking about this as I was watching it last night because I do remember 
when I was a, a kid, I would be really, really excited to watch the Brownlow. I would follow round by round and, and keep track of where players are and, and get really into it. And it, because uh, I thought that, you know, as a kid, that the Brownlow was the be-all and end-all if you can win this. And I, I will say that I it, it's still clearly a, a pretty prestigious award and one that all the players want to win. There's, I mean, that's I'm not trying to say it's not, but I do think that it's been watered down a little bit because of the emphasis now we place on the MVP and the emphasis we now play on the coaches award. So there's all these different awards that, as you sort of pointed to, in their own little way are flawed. So I, I think that the Brownlow, it, it's <laughs> we know it. We see it every single year. There are players that will just get votes. And and no matter what happens, if, it's, if they're not necessarily best on the ground, they'll get votes because they stand out because they are uh, historically vote getters as well. So the Brownlow for me has lost a little bit it was lost probably over the last five, six, seven years. But I thought this count in general was fine. I mean, sure, a guy like Nick Nui and the influence he has on the game, it, it's it's an obvious influence. So he probably should have got more votes than he did because it, it's not like he's an under-the-radar player. He stands out with everything that he does. So it's kind of shocking that he didn't get more votes, but it's certainly not something I get mad about. It was a little bit strange. It was a little bit strange with everyone split up all over the place. Everyone was kind of casual some people were at tables some were kicking back on couches i don't know the whole thing was a little bit odd but to be fair uh, i think they did a reasonably good job considering the circumstances uh, as they have all season long to be fair yeah the broadcast was you know was was great considering what they were up against so there's there no problem with that one of the issues i have with the brownlow is it just it's so dominated by midfielders and especially inside midfielders like neil boke petrarca Steele, dangerfield dusty luke parker mccray guthrie oliver like that's like your top ten right there. Then you got Max Gordon. Then it's Pendlebury, Merritt, yeah, another bunch of these guys. You know, Toby Green pushing up as a forward. So that's interesting to see him there. But just so many midfielders. Do you know who the highest polling defender was? Uh, let me think about this. So the highest polling defender would that have been? Unless I've missed someone, I'll, I hope I've got my answer right here. But let's go. It wouldn't be Darcy Moore, would it? It was Darcy Moore and Luke Ryan, both okay. equal on six votes. Yeah. So, yeah, that is obviously a really, really low number um, in terms of when you're looking at the winner getting 31 and then all these other midfielders, you know, 15, 14. Now, you can run with midfielders, but you can't win a, a game just with midfielders. You've got to have these other players. So it was good to see Tom Hawkins get 11 votes. We saw Charlie Dixon get, I think, nine votes. But still, outside of these inside mids, nobody really seems to get the attention of the umpires. And again, it's because the umpires, they're around the ball. So they are right there, and they are seeing who's getting the ball. And it's just, it's almost, yeah, who gets the most possessions, who gets the, the votes a lot of the time, unless you kick a big bag of goal. If you kick six, where well, you're going to get votes. It, it just appears to be the way the umpires view these. This is no knock on the umpires, because it's bloody hard to be able to do that as an umpire, yeah, and have a general overview of what's actually happening in a game. But it, I, it's, we put so much focus on the Brownlow when it is really a, a tough award to judge for these umpires, and they're not in that position to be able to do it. And it is really focusing in on these inside midfielders versus these other players. Like Darcy Moore, all Australian, and he's the top-rated defender. He gets six votes. Like he got, he polled in three games as one of the best six defenders in the. Him and Luke Ryan, one of the best six defenders in the entire league, according to the All-Australian all voters, Ryan polled in two games and Moore polled in three. Yeah, uh, I think the, the one thing I'll say about the Brownlow is that even though it is, as everyone knows, and everyone's known it for a long time, it is the Midfielders Award, but 
they do at least, you know, most of the time when the award comes out, it's someone that has had an elite season. So I'll say that. I mean, most of the time you look at the guy that won it and you're like, yeah, this oh, guy's yeah. a superstar. He absolutely deserves an award. And I know you're not suggesting otherwise there, but it was last night. Yeah, to to look at Lockie Neal, and if you watch Brisbane, and even if you watch Brisbane the night before, as you as you touched on in that in that prelim, Lockie Neal was fantastic. Kicks those goals, he's a leader. He wins the the footy in a way that that is eye catching to the umpires, as you pointed to. And I think again, that's why the other awards, sometimes the coaches' awards, um, which you know in its own right, it, it often ends up with a midfielder winning as well. But the coaches' awards and the MVP, it gives these other guys more of a chance because. The, the Moore and Ryan examples are good ones because they you know, clearly have had huge influence over the game. But down the other end as well, the fact that you know Hawkins, as you sort of pointed to, 11 votes, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, he's, he's polled pretty well. But we spoke about it through the year. I mean, Hawkins, <laughs> some, of the, some of the ways that he dominated games this year, not only kicking the goals, but his disposal counts really, really high for a key forward. Contested marks, goal assists, score involvements. It would be hard to have a season where you're involved as much as Hawkins. So even 11 votes for a season like that is kind of laughable if you if you watched Geelong week in week out and saw how important he was to the wins. It's just it's just really difficult to overlook. I, I guess a uh, uh, Cam Guthrie who, who might have 26 touches on the game and then go to Hawkins who had 10 and kicked three. I, even though the influence you know from an outside perspective, or as we analyze the game, uh, might have gone the other way. It's it's kind of. Uh, I guess it's, it, that's the difficulty that the umpires have. Yeah, it's like looking at you know, Jack Steele coming in fourth. He, he had a great season. He had 17 yeah. votes. Like Luke Parker got 15 votes. Um, yeah, yeah. Guthrie had 14 and Dangerfield had 15. Like two midfielders and both significantly ahead of where Tom Hawkins are, is. And I don't think you can tell me that you know, Luke Parker or Zach Merritt or even Tim Kelly, or these guys have better seasons than Darcy Moore? Or Luke Ryan, like you, you can't tell me. You can't tell me that Tom Mitchell, who got ten votes, had that much of a better season than someone like Charlie Dixon, who got nine votes, or like these these defenders that I'm talking. About, or Nat Nui at five, or these other players. Robbie Gray only got five votes. Thought so he was really, really good in his role because he's almost playing exclusively forward now as a small forward. It's hard to get that sort of recognition. Nick Haynes got four votes. Like no, no one's out here telling me that Tom Mitchell had a better season than Nick Haynes. It just, no. it's just, it's so hard to, not to take it seriously because we know it's still the most important award, and Lockie Neal is absolutely deserving winner. As is Travis Bow coming second, and Christian Petrarca coming third. Like I don't think anybody would have any problem with that top three, but the way that it is all looked at, it is quite skewed, and it's been this way forever. Like I, as a Bulldogs fan, like Dale Morris was such a key defender for that team for ten plus years. Got one vote in his entire career. You can't tell me that, that that makes any sense for a bloke that was... He he was an All-Australian at one point. He was you know, top three best and fairest. Even Caleb Daniel this year for the Bulldogs won their best and fairest and got, I think, three Brownlow votes. He pulled in two yeah. games and, and won a best and fairest. Like, it doesn't make sense. No, no, it doesn't. And that's probably part of the reason why I've gotten over it a little bit. But also, everyone generally seems to have a fair idea of who's going to win it before coming in. And on a night like last night, it was difficult because you did feel... That uh, that Lockie Neal was going to get it. The one thing I will say is that uh, because it was so relaxed in the social distancing and and the guys in Melbourne, the poor fellas in Melbourne sitting there through the whole night with masks on, uh, you know, a little bit of an interesting look for them. But I guess uh, those are the rules. But overall, I thought they pushed through the broadcast relatively quickly. I was I was fine with it, and I was fine with the Sunday. It doesn't bother me Sunday or Monday, whatever. Get it out of the way. Let's get on with the granny. Yep. 
uh, don't care about that at all. We've got plenty of uh, grand final talk to go the rest of this week as we lead up to the big one, the first uh, the first all interstate grand final that we've had for a while. Uh, <laughs> I think since 2011. Yeah, 2011, I think it was cats and the pies back then, and I, I like the uh, I like the way you've called it all interstate grand final because I guess it is. It is uh, when you consider. Uh, the the grannies at the Gabba, but that's MCG turf. We can only hope that it's uh, just. We can only hope that it's just about to arrive. Does that at, give uh, uh, Does that give Richmond the home ground advantage? Uh, I, I listen. Uh, I, I am wondering why there isn't a little bit of GMHBA Stadium getting <laughs> trucked up there as well. They might have to express post it up there or something. I'm not 100 percent sure. Guys, we're going to be back to talk uh, actual footy stuff as well as bullshit through the rest of the week. So subscribe Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Kane. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be, as I said, first grand final week for us. And I will say this, we probably will talk about Brisbane and Port a little bit more on tomorrow's show as we did last week. So if there's any questions, any thoughts, any theories, make sure to send them through at Locked On AFL. Guys, that's it for today. I'm going to leave you with a shout out to Kane Tenace.